7. We have been looking uh, for several weeks at the, at the life of David. We're mining out some secrets in this series. Uh, secrets for living spiritual lives that are alive and satisfying and useful to the kingdom of God. We're talking about a spirituality. It's not like hocus pocus crystals, you know, spirituality, like chanting and pointing yourself towards the North Pole or something spirituality. It's like a real, authentic, raw, rugged spirituality. The kind of spiritual reality that, that comes about when we are aware that God is at work in our lives, that God is at work through us and around us and in us, and that he, not you or me, is at the center of it all. That, it's that kind of a spirituality. It's a spirituality where it's not about us. It's not about you or me. It's about God. That is authentic spirituality. It's raw. It's rugged. It's, it's real. Now, the funny thing is, if you think about, uh, if most of us think about our spirituality, our spiritual walk, the ideal spiritual walk, our lives, would, they would probably be smooth, not rugged. If you were just, you know, kind of going to make up your own spirituality, you would want smooth a life of spirituality, uh, a life full of peaks uh, without valleys, right? Uh, we would find ourselves in plenty, in, in victory just all the time, abundant life, lots of smiley faces, this kind of spirituality. And the challenge is that life really doesn't work that way, does it? There's peaks and there's valleys, uh, and there's deserts and hurricanes and tornadoes thrown in there for good measure, right? And there's sunny days too, which is great, but that's just real life, and that's really what this series is about. It's about real life. And what we have seen over and over and over uh, in this last month is evidence of this unique relationship that David has with God. And whatever happens through highs and lows, David experiences the hand of God guiding him and shaping him and molding him into the man he's meant to be. David goes from being a nobody in a nowhere town to being a national hero. And the next moment he's running for his dear life from a king who wants him dead to eventually becoming the king. And then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, as a king, he doesn't hold anything back from God. He worships all the way. He dances like a maniac. He puts God, he makes God the centerpiece of the nation and of his heart, even, even when his own wife makes fun of him. Uh, he's a man truly after God's own heart. This is David, which is going to make it all the more traumatic and confusing for us this morning as we engage one of the lowest points in David's life. After this lifetime of seeing God move miraculously in his story, and, and at an older age when, you know what, he definitely should have known better, uh, we arrive at the scandalous event between him and a woman named Bathsheba. And, and one of the things you're going to learn very long if you do this journey with Christ uh, before long, you're going to learn that it's much easier to start well than to finish well. It's easier to start well. When we're younger, I think back when I was young, and, and, and you know, in the things of the Lord, we're starting out with God. When we just get saved, we're thinking, yeah, we're on fire. We're thinking, this is going to be great. I'm on fire for God. I'm going to have it all figured out pretty soon. And, you know, it's just, and it'll just be this sort of like coasting through the rest of my life, just me and God, right? This lifelong vacation, me and God. And in reality, you never get to stop being diligent about sin. Never. When I, when I was a young man, I would, I would have a, 
there was a time I was working at this little job in the warehouse, and me and some other guys, some Christians, we'd get together on our lunch breaks, and we'd pray and read the Bible and things like that and talk about stuff. And I remember there was this, like, 70-year-old guy who had been a Christian forever, and he, he, I remember him praying once, Lord, thank you for forgiving me of lust. And I remember thinking, dude, are you serious? Still? You, you haven't got that figured out yet? And it was really discouraging, because I thought for sure by then, you know, that wasn't going to be a problem anymore. You right? I was just ready to check the whole thing when I heard him pray that. Still? But we can't ever stop being diligent against sin. And so as we look at the life of David, hopefully we can get some clues. We want to get some clues. How we're supposed, uh, things we're supposed to pay attention to. How does sin work? Where does it show up? How can we avoid it? And ultimately, what do I do when I find myself in the midst of it? So this morning, we're going to look at this story. And the way we're going to kind of do it, uh, splitting it up into sort of like four acts. You can imagine it like a play, act one, act two, act three, act four. And so we begin with act one, the sin of David. When When we're in 2 Samuel 11... What's going on in the background is David and his kingdom, they're, they're, it's, they're enjoying unprecedented prosperity. Everything's going great. Uh, they're conquering enemies. And in 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now notice here, for whatever reason, David doesn't go off to war in the time when kings go off to war. And the writer makes sure that we notice this point. And we don't know why, but he stays back. He sends his generals. And one night, probably feeling like he's, you know, kind of the only man left in town, he wakes up and he's walking along the high terrace of his palace and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath on another terrace down below, right? He sees her bathing on the roof. And I don't think he's really singing hallelujah. He's kind of singing hubba hubba, right? He sees her down there and he sends his people to go find out who this woman is, and they come back and say, well, it's Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, one of your mighty warriors, who, by the way, is off at war. And, and so then he sends for Bathsheba, and she comes to his palace, and you know the story, he sleeps with her. And, you know, we don't know really what happened there. We don't know if it was consensual, if it was, you know, if he forced himself or what, but we know in the context of this day and age, uh, this hierarchical kind of a society, a king who was calling on a woman Honestly, she probably didn't have a whole lot of options. And, and time passes, and she sends word that she's pregnant. Because, uh, by the way, gentlemen, sin is never clean and simple, right? But David's like, okay, because he's a guy, I can fix this, right? I can fix this. And he calls for Uriah to come home from the battle. Uh, and Sariah comes home from the battle, and he gives David a report of the fighting, tells him how everything's going on. And David's like, okay, that's great. You know, Uriah, you've been, uh, you know, working hard. You've been, you know, in the battle. Why don't you go home now? Uh, go home to your house and wash your feet, is the term he uses. This is an ancient euphemism for go sleep with your wife. Um, that's, what, that's what that meant. Go enjoy your marriage bed. Go wash your feet. Which husbands? Feel free to try that next time you come home from work. Um, Want to wash your feet? I don't know if that's going to work as good as, like, carrying roses, but it is Father's Day. It's my, you might want to try it. Um, so Uriah, so he tells Uriah, go home, go home to your wife. But Uriah kind of messes with David a little bit here, because Uriah, see, he's, 
he's just got a little bit too much integrity. And, and he goes and he sleeps outside the palace door instead of going home and enjoying the comforts of his house. And Uriah says to David, he says, how can I go home to my wife when my men are at battle in the ark of the God, ark of God is pitched in a tent? How can I do that? And so David's thinking, okay, this is uh, not going very well. And so um, he's, he thinks, okay, I know what I'm gonna do. And he holds a big banquet and he invites Uriah and he gets Uriah like hammered, right? Because David's thinking when anybody's drunk, you know, your whole like integrity thing loosens up a little bit, right? And so he gets him just wasted and, and, and maybe then he'll go home. That's what he's thinking, but he doesn't. Uriah says he stumbles out of the party and then just sleeps at the front of the palace gates again. So David gets really frustrated at this point. And we see here the spiral that sin takes hold of our life. When sin takes hold, we see what happens, this spiral that just continues. And David says to his general, send Uriah to the fiercest part of the battle, put him on the front line, and then when the battle is greatest, have the army retreat and leave him behind to die. And he seals up the order and he gives it to Uriah to deliver to the general. Uriah has no idea he's carrying his own death sentence. He takes it back to the general. And you know, you just, if you've seen like Braveheart or any of these kind of movies, you know what, you can, you can imagine what that battle is like. I can imagine Uriah out there fighting the Ammonites. I mean, this is the Iron Age. It's savage. They're fighting this incredible, brutal battle on the front line, sword to sword, bloods everywhere, and it's getting fiercer and fiercer. And you can imagine Uriah, he realizes he's being overtaken. And he turns and he looks and his whole army is retreating and leaving him. They're backing off and he gets hit with arrows and spear and sword and he's standing there and he falls to the ground, dying that slow death of battle. And who is he thinking of in that moment? More than likely Bathsheba, his wife, his love. And word gets back to David and David sends for Bathsheba and he marries her. And to David at this point, it has to look all pretty clean right? It seems like he actually pulled it off. David's thinking, man, I'm good. And so act one, David sins. But what is really going on inside David? Because I want to look at this. Sometimes we look at this and we think, and I've heard it a hundred different ways, you know, that his problem is lust, or maybe he's a sex addict or something like that. He has all these problems. But the truth is, when you read the scriptures, David's root problem his root sin isn't just sex. There's a deeper, there's a completely deeper issue. The sex is just a manifestation of that. The murder is just a manifestation of some core, deeper-rooted sin. And the writer of the story actually gives us some clues to what that might be. Look at these passages with me. I'm just going to kind of summarize these. In verse 1, David sent Joab out with the king's men. In, in verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. In verse 4, what does he do? He sent messengers to go get her. In verse 6, David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah. Send me Uriah. In verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In verse 27, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. In other words, he sent for her. Sent, sent, sent. What is going on is that David, David is playing God. At the core of David's sin 
is that somewhere he started believing that he is like God. Somewhere along the line, this godly man whose identity was always marked by this humble worship of God, the God who was in control of his life, right? Somewhere along that, that line, his, that identity started to slip. And David started to believe that all these stories were really about him, that all this was happening because of him, that he was the one in control of everything and everyone. And so David can send somebody, right? I want that woman, send messengers and bring her to me. There's a problem? Ah, we'll just send someone to go kill your husband, right? Not only is he God in thinking that he's in control of his life, but he's playing God to control other people's lives. And that is always how sin works. That is how sin works. It's a story that repeats itself over and over in so many different ways. Lying, murder, stealing, greed, lust, adultery. There's only so many ways, you know, we as human beings can get creative with this root sin that says, I can be like God. I can control my life. I can control, manipulate, and use other people. And guys, guys out there, listen to me. I, I'm not trying to bum you out on Father's Day, right? But I've got to tell you this, because otherwise, you know, God will hold me accountable. It doesn't matter if you're David watching her bathing on the roof, or if you're you watching her on bathingontheroof.com. It doesn't matter when you use another human being for your own selfish pleasure in total disregard what God has put you on this planet to do. And I've just seen this ruin so many people. It's, I feel really passionate about this. When you're playing God over, over your own life and over the lives of others instead of being a living sacrifice for others, which is what God called you to do, when you forget you were created for the battle. You were created for the battle. Not, not to, to open up your home to every, and your mind and your heart to every whim and every craving that passes through your brain. When you forget who is really Lord over your life, you're sunk. You're sunk. Now, let me make a small uh, little detour here for just a second, okay? A little caveat. Um, we often see a story like this, and our tendency is when we read these stories, we reframe it in terms of good guys and bad guys. Uh, David's a bad guy here, right? He's just a bad guy. Uriah's the good guy. And uh, that's the problem. Uriah's the moral figure, and David's problem is he just doesn't act moral enough. He's not acting moral enough. Um, it kind of makes me think, every time I, when I'm at home, every time I sit down to watch sports, if I'm in the living room, I turn on the TV and I'm watching sports, I'm watching like college football, like the Longhorns play or something like that, or I'm watching like the World Cup, all the World Cups, and it's Christmas in the Hill House right now. Uh, so anytime I'm sitting there watching, whether it's basketball or whatever it is, my little boy Mason, my youngest, he, he always has one important question that before he can get into the game with me, because he didn't really understand what's going on, but he has one important question that matters the most to him. Who are the good guys? Who are the good guys, right? That's what he asks. And I'll point to the team, you know, the ones with the orange or something like that. And I'll say, you know, them. And, and, and so he'll point to the other team. And he'll go, well, Daddy, are they bad? You know, and you're thinking, well, 
yeah, they're really bad, you know, unless they're playing Oklahoma. And then I say, yes, son. Those are, they're very, very bad. Very bad. Because um, you, you have to train up your child. <laughs> Sooners, not state. Okay. All right. But see, we, we tend to line up teams when we read a story, don't we? We, t- we line them up. These are the moral people. These are the immoral people. And their biggest problem is they're just not moral enough. The issue I just want to make is this. God, he did not enter time and space, live here on earth, preach the kingdom of heaven, die on a cross excruciatingly, and then raise from the dead so you and I can try to be more moral. Okay? I'm going to make a point here. He died on the cross, and he rose from the dead so that you and I could become worshiping children of God. After thousands of years, finally, men and women could have this relationship with God. He wants worshipers, which is a radically different purpose in life and and for salvation than just behavior modification, okay? Now, let's go back to the other side, because I'm not saying morality is not important. By no means, I'm saying this. I'm saying this, religion always flips what is purpose and what is result. Religion always flips that around. It always gets confused about that, right? And and so so religion gets mad at sinners because they're like doing bad stuff instead of telling them about the liberty and the freedom that Jesus offers when he, because he's made a way for us to become worshipers of Jesus. Your ultimate purpose for existing is to be a worshiper of holy God with all your might. That is your purpose for existing, to be a worshiper of God. And the result of walking in that lifestyle is that you should have a desire to please God more and more. And by living a life of holiness before him and allowing him to form you into the image of Christ, which is what he's up to all the time, okay? But see, making your whole life's goal to keep from sinning it misses the whole point. You're missing the point. Getting through the day sin-free, I like to say, is, is not actually why you were created, right? That is not mission accomplished. I stayed in my room all day, <laughs> sin-free, right? That's not mission accomplished. Now, we do want to live moral lives, right? Uh, right? Ho- hopefully you, you want to, even if you're struggling with it. Hopefully you want to live a moral life. Now, if you truly want to become a moral Christ-like man or woman, which we do, then what we've got to do is get to the root of the sin, the root of the sin, and say, he is God, I am not God. So I'm going to worship him with my whole being. And when I fail to do that, when I fail to start with that, no matter how hard I try to stay moral, I am going to fail, I'm going to slip up, I'm going to be on the road to sin. I'm going to be frustrated for the rest of my life because it's going to show up somehow if I don't start with worship. Guys, if you want to be moral, you've got to be a worshiper. You've got to be a worshiper. Amen? Okay, all right. That's all done. Back to our story here. So now another problem we see with David, another problem we see here is, do you notice he kind of doesn't really seem like he thinks he's done anything wrong, Right? And, and that's because pride has this funny way of not feeling like sin. Pride doesn't really feel like sin when you're doing it, 
it feels pretty good, actually. It feels kind of noble sometimes, right? David, he felt like a king. He's in control, right? He feels like a lover, right? He's like, hey, you get to share in the king's bed, right? He writes psalms. He's like, you know, I'm published. Maybe you've read the, maybe you've read the Bible, right? He's Mr. Sensitive Warrior Poet Guy, right? That all makes all the women swoon. This is what he's thinking. He's probably thinking Bathsheba. You know, this is a, this is a really great deal for you. This is a pretty good thing. The problem is, it's total deception. He's living under an illusion at this point. David is only king because God allowed him to be one, right? He's only a lover when he's given himself away, not when he's taking. And so when he thinks he's a lover, he's actually a murderer. And when he thinks he's acting like a king, he's actually acting like a demon because he's living under an illusion. And so here he is in the wreckage of this sin, but he doesn't even know it, which to me is kind of the saddest thing. There's such a difference in people. And I've been there too. There's such a difference. People who come to the table and say, I have sinned. And, and people who sin and you have to like convince them of it, right? And the difference is one, one of those persons is still in tune with their heart enough to go, oh dear God, what have I done? And the other person is further down the road of losing connection with their heart. And so there's really no shock left. There's no horror left. Which brings us to Act 2, David's conviction. As we move to chapter 12, we see the Lord brings conviction. He's making David aware of God again. And this act in chapter 12, it begins with the greatest one-liner if you're paying attention to the story. Verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now God's doing the sending. Because that's what God does. He's sending Nathan the prophet to bring conviction. Because God loves David, right? He wants David to become aware of himself. He wants, to he wants him to confess and repent. He wants him to be David again. God's like, I want my David back, my worshiper. Conviction. Conviction sounds like a dirty word for, to some people. But it's basically when something from God enters our life by the Holy Spirit to bring us an awareness of sin and then in our remembrance of him. Something from God enters our life through the Holy Spirit to help us to be aware of our sin and to remember God and who he is. And without that conviction, we just keep playing God. That's what we'll do, right? Hurting other people, hurting ourselves. If you were never convicted about anything, we just keep, would, would keep going on. So conviction sounds really mean and judgmental sometimes, but conviction is actually evidence of God's incredible love for you. Now, Nathan, in this story, I like Nathan. He's, he's actually a friend to David. Nathan is like a great pastor. He's like the guy who enters into David's life in a way that nobody around, nobody else really can or even wants to, right? Nobody's gonna call out the king. And I like Nathan here because he's strategic, he's clever, and he's friendly. He comes up and he's, he doesn't just like bang on the door and start screaming like, David, you reprobate, you're gonna burn, you rotten heathen, you know? He doesn't, you know, that's, that's not him. Because David doesn't even think he's done anything wrong, right? He thinks he's a great guy. It's easy to justify our own sin, 
So sometimes we need that voice to speak into our life in love and humility and sweetness and, and kind of cut through the self-delusion. We need that. I need that sometimes. Amen. So he tells him a story. He tells him this really interesting story. He said, David, there's, a, there's this poor man who had this, this little lamb. And this little lamb wasn't like an ordinary farm animal they were raising for Easter dinner or something like that. It was a pet lamb. Right? And all the kids loved it. They named it Timmy or something like that. And it slept in their bed with them, and it, they played with it. It was more like a puppy than a lamb. And then, David, there was this rich man, their neighbor, who probably had thousands of sheep on his property, really wealthy guy. And a traveler came to stay with the rich man, and the traveler was hungry. And the rich man, for some reason, rather than slaughtering one of his own animals and preparing a meal, he went over and stole the poor lamb's the man's, poor man's lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he fed it to the traveler. Leg of Timmy. <laughs> right? And Nathan's good. He's, he's, he's milking this story to David, right? And David is hearing the story, and he is just getting fired up angry, right? Because there is, like, justice that needs to be done. And David's hearing this. He's ready to execute this jerk. Who is this guy in my kingdom, right? Who, he'll pay for this. He's ready to be the hand of God's wrath right now, right? This is David. This guy has to die. That is so unjust. And Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the rich man. Uh, and David hears this rebuke from God in a powerful way, and it kind of sends him reeling. It's one of those oh no moments you have when you, everything gets really clear. The jig is up, the game is over. And as fun as it was to think that I was God and I was king and I was a lover, the reality is I'm just broken and I'm just humbled and I'm back to being a human, I'm frail and I am so not God. And this is what David is experiencing. And Nathan, he continues his rebuke in verse 9. He says, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So this is important because not only is there sin, there's consequence, right? Always. Anytime we start to play God, there's going to be bad consequence, and we might as well accept it. I, I think often on this side of the cross where we are today, many of us have so cheapened the idea of grace, our understanding of grace. We think, well, you know, if I sin, God forgives me, and we're cool, right? We're all right, God. I sinned, you forgive. That's what you said. It's the deal. And God the truth is he is faithful to forgive and to restore that relationship when we repent. But you will have consequence to your sin. We have consequences. If you break the law, there's consequences. If you commit adultery, it's going to have a radical consequence in your marriage, on your family. If you don't believe me, guys, just try saying to your wife, honey, I know I treated you horribly, but God forgave me, so... Why don't you come give me a back rub, you know? <laughs> right, yeah? And then call me, because I want to hear, like, the dishes that are crashing behind your head, right, when that happens. That would be awesome. 
That moment, that moment of your sin finding you out, it's excruciating. I know it's excruciating. But in that moment is also the moment of God's mercy. Which brings us to Act 3, David's repentance. And it comes out in a very simple statement. One short little verse, in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. This is, this is just like the nature of David. True to, true to his, the way his nature is throughout his life, he doesn't justify his sin when he's confronted with it. He doesn't backpedal. He falls on his face in humility as he has all of his life and he acknowledges that cold, hard, raw truth. I have sinned. And we see David becoming David again. He's aware of God. He's aware of his own place, far beneath God. He's ready to be honest with God. And, and notice who he recognizes as the true object of his sin. Right? I mean, David's got a serious laundry list of people that he's, he's wronged. But he recognizes the one he has really sinned against. I have sinned against the Lord. Now, what's cool is in the scriptures, uh, when we read these, these stories of David and Samuel and Judges, when we, get, we can also uh, hear the wrestlings of his heart when we flip over to the Psalms. And in Psalm 51, there's a beautiful place. It's, this is the psalm that was written on this very occasion after realizing he's committed adultery. And, and so listen to the rawness and the authenticity here. It's not piety. It's not like pretty religious language. It's the cry of a broken man. In verse 1, he says, in Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to the great, your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Can you hear this language of, of humility? You hear that language of surrender in his voice? David, he feels now as he should feel, as a sinner before a holy God. Not a king, not a lover, but a man who is vulnerable before God. We skip down to verse 12. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. See, why, why are we spending time in this series? Why are we looking at the life of David? Because we learn from David not only how to live in victory through his successes, but we learn from his disasters how to confess, how to repent humbly, our, our sin and lay it before the Lord. And it's important to learn this. It's important to learn this. Guys, fathers, I'm gonna talk to you just this morning for a second. Listen, we, we're gonna make mistakes. You're gonna make mistakes. 
because you're not Superman, right? You're not God. And so you better learn not only how to, you know, fix the kitchen sink and change a tire and teach your kid to throw a ball and get bats out of the house when that happens. You better learn how to repent when you need to. We got to learn how to humbly go before our wife and our kids and say, honey, kids, daddy screwed up. I'm asking for your forgiveness. We got to learn to humble ourselves that way. That's super dad. Not the dad that doesn't make mistakes. It's the dad that knows how to humble himself and ask for repentance. Ask for forgiveness. So don't be afraid to get real before God. That's, that is authentic spirituality. Let the light of God open you up. Let it come in and reveal the things that need exposing. Don't hide anything from God. And so David confesses, and the last move is God's. It's in his hands. And we see in Act 4, David's restoration. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, you're the son born to you will die. More consequence for David's sin. More consequence. And it says after, after the baby died in verse 24, it says that David went in and comforted Bathsheba. Now he's being a real lover, a comforter instead of a taker. And soon God gives David and Bathsheba another son. And by verse 29, David is full king again. He's out there. He conquers the Ammonites. He makes Israel safe. And throughout David's life, we see a picture of a God who desires above all else, he desires a relationship with David. That's the picture of God we see, a God who will do whatever it takes to maintain and restore that relationship. And on the other side of the picture, we see a man who is passionate and impulsive and sometimes reckless, and he's full of faults, but he's also full of worship. And ultimately, this imperfect guy, this man is the one about whom God says, that guy, that man is after my own heart. That guy, he's after my own heart. And you and I, this morning, ourselves, we, we find ourselves in this story as David. When he sins and thinks he is God, that's us. Every time we do that. We are David. And Jesus, in one sense, Jesus is our innocent Uriah. He's the innocent lamb who dies as a consequence of our sin. But unlike Uriah, the victim in this story, who blindly goes into battle, Jesus willingly comes to the cross. He willingly goes as our hero. And in that moment of crucifixion, as the, as the father backs away from Jesus, just like Uriah was left alone on that battlefield, Jesus takes all of our sin on himself. And in that moment, the door of relationship with a holy God is thrown open to us. And all you have to do is repent 
return to your calling of being God's humble worshiper. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come humbly before you today, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts that you put in our life. We thank you for the, the jobs that you give us, Lord God. We thank you for the families that you give us, for our children, for our spouse, for every good thing, Lord. Your word says it comes from you. We thank you, Father God, for your grace and your mercy and your unending patience with us, Father. We thank you, Lord God, that you, you love us enough to convict us when we're walking down the wrong road, Lord. And I thank you, Lord God, that today, that this message is not one of condemnation, but a message of hope for somebody here today, Father God, that, that they can turn and come back to you and be in right relationship with you in, in a second, Father. And I thank you, Lord, that you will make that way for us because your mercy is never ending. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. I thank you for every dad here, Lord God. I thank you for blessing them head to toe. Every dad, every stepdad, every grandfather, Lord God, the people who are having a, a positive influence in the lives of children, Lord God. Guys who are, maybe all, they're just mentors to children. We thank you, Father God, for them. We thank you, Lord, for your blessing on their lives. We praise you, Lord God. Help us to, to be the men that, that are our children's glory, as Pastor talked about earlier, Lord. We praise you. Thank you, Lord God. Help us to be humble warriors for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm gonna ask our prayer partners to come forward this morning. And if you have anything going on in your life that you need prayer about, before you leave, I encourage you to come and take advantage of this opportunity to pray with them. If you wanna receive Jesus in your heart, you just need to confess some sin or just you just, you just know there's something you need to get right with God about. These guys are awesome. They love you. They will pray the prayer of faith with you and stand with you. And today can be a totally different day than any day you've ever had before. And tomorrow will be the, a different day than you've ever had before in Jesus' name. You guys have a great day. Have a wonderful Father's Day. Uh, pray for our VBS kids. And uh, if you can stick around, help us with the chairs, that'll be awesome. And Wednesday night, make sure you're here because Miss Debbie Fink is gonna rock it with the, uh, with the next series, sermon in our worship series on Wednesday night. And uh, Saturday, hopefully you can make it to the Joel Johnson Conference, and we'll see you next Sunday. All right, bye-bye.